Welcome to the Impact Gap Podcast. We are a graduate student-run, patient-centered podcast group based at the University of Toronto. Our mission is to provide a platform for patients and advocates to share important patient issues within our healthcare system. Today, we will be discussing Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Duchenne is a fatal genetic disorder that slowly robs people of their muscle strength. Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, or PPMD, is an organization dedicated to helping those with Duchenne to live longer and stronger lives. Our special guest, Pat Furlong of PPMD, will be joining our discussion today. To get started, Pat, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, thank you. Thank you for including me. My name is Pat Furlong, and I'm President and Chief executive officer of an organization called Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy. We call it PPMD for short. Um, This is an organization that is about 26 years old and it's focused on Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Duchenne is a rare rare disease. Um, It's one of the neuromuscular diseases, in fact, the most predominant neuromuscular disease. It occurs most frequently in boys because it's an X-linked disease uh, diagnosed usually between the ages of four and five years old. Thank you for joining us today and for that introduction, Pat. Would you be able to start off by telling us your story of how you got to where you are today? Sure, I'm happy to tell you the story. So long, long ago um, in the late 80s, um, I, well, I have four children even today, I have four children. So I had four little ones at home and they were stair step children, four, six, eight, and 10. And I have two daughters who were the oldest, the two oldest, and then two sons who were younger. I noticed in my sons that they weren't keeping up with their peers. They found stairs very, very difficult. And I didn't see them ride bikes and run as other young children the same age would do. Um, I have been in medicine. I've had a career in nursing. My husband's a physician. We were concerned about what what we were seeing, right? Um, But at that time, expressing concern to various physicians was usually dismissed as in They'll grow up, those muscles, you know, you're big people, my husband's tall, I'm tall, and they'll grow into those muscles. So it was generally this diagnostic odyssey of expressing concern, but being dismissed. So there was a day in June, um, my son Christopher was outside and he was attempting to ride a little tricycle, at which time he hurt himself. And it, I, I think in, in retrospect, what happened is he probably had a little tear in the Achilles tendon of the ankle. And that resulted in pain and some swelling, so I carried him inside the house that day. He he really was in pain most of the evening, so the next morning, my husband called a friend of ours who's an orthopedic surgeon and said, could you take a look at Chris's ankle? And so I carried Chris into the office and in the middle of the hallway, actually, this particular orthopedic surgeon said he has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And when I asked, what is it? Um, because I my nursing career had been in adult medicine, med surge, um, organ transplantation, renal dialysis, et cetera. So when he said that, and I asked him, what does that mean? And he said, well, Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a rare disease. It's X-linked. He said that these children are missing components in muscle where muscle can't survive. So he called it a skeletal muscle disease. And he said, over time, these children, while they're functional now, will lose function. So by the time they're 13, they will 
not be walking, 11, 12, 13, they'll lose ambulation. And by the time they're 15 or 16, they'll die. Would you be willing to share how you felt in that moment when you learned about this? So um, first of all, that was um, horrific to learn. And from that day on, then the word Duchenne occupied every single thought and every single moment of our lives. Once they were diagnosed with Duchenne, you might imagine as parents, we were like, so what can we do? Because the answer in medicine that you can't do anything is not a satisfactory answer. So we began researching what is out there. And finally, in, in, the, in the research work that we've done, or we did at the time, they were really about five or six very simple questions. And that was, why the late diagnosis? How do you make a diagnosis? Then what is the standard of care? So what do we know about these patients that we can use known medical tools to help them? Or are there any tools and how are they utilized? Then what is the research? How well characterizes this disease? Where's the money? Who's investing in this disease? And are there any companies involved? So as we looked at those questions, the answer to this was the diagnostic delay exists, right? And at the time, long ago, therapeutic nihilism was also present. It was, it's a terrible disease, it's catastrophic, and they're going to die, right? So there, and there's nothing we can do, which is exactly what the doctor said to us. There's no hope and no help. You just love them until they die, which again, not very satisfactory in medicine. When we thought about um, who are the experts, there were few experts, but really no data to provide that expertise, only interest rather than expertise. And when we ask about money, there was such a little uh, investment in this disease that we knew based on that investment, you could not entice expertise, recruit researchers, get companies involved. There, there was no way to do that. So I then started. Uh, well, I, I ran around the earth, actually, to try to solve the issue of who are the experts, where are those experts, what are they doing, and how much money do they have? So I made my way into various laboratories and, and clinical communities to ask those questions. And when I realized that there were none, I decided that there had to be an organization that was focused solely on Duchenne muscular dystrophy to approach exactly these questions. So by the time I ran around the earth and tried to figure it out, what could be done, and went up to the National Institutes of Health, uh, which is the research enterprise in the United States that, that has a very large budget, and learned that they are not, were not interested in rare disease. I felt that an organization that focused on Duchenne could try to drive change in the field and try to leverage investments into this, into this research. So I started PPMD. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think you really highlighted some of the important issues, such as your concerns being dismissed, uh, that idea of no hope and no help, and also running around the earth in search of answers and a solution. So we really thank you for sharing that. Sure. When you think about what's going on today, what would you say is the most important issue faced by those with muscular dystrophy? I think time. A progressive disease diagnosed still, the mean age of diagnosis is between four and six years old, usually four to five. Um, and then over a period of 20 years from the diagnosis, these children will gain skills as they refine small and large motor function. And then they will have their peak of skills around the ages of seven or eight, at which time they will lose skills. So this is a genetic disease. And the, the 
protein that's missing here is a skeletal muscle protein and cardiac muscle protein and smooth muscle protein. So it's a protein that exists in all tissue and it's called dystrophin. So we are doing much better in terms of we now have certified centers where patients um, receive standard of care. We have standards of care that are published in 2010 in Lancet and updated in 2018. And in the update, there is care for adults, which is terrific, right? Um, and we're moving that field forward. And the investment in Duchenne is now in the billions with NIH, uh, National Institutes of Health, investing over the years from 2001 to today, more than $600 million in this field, which brought on industry. So I think the challenge here that we're facing, first of all, is earlier diagnosis. We, we've launched newborn screening. The second challenge is making sure that everyone who is diagnosed receives optimal care, and that is um, everywhere in the world. So it shouldn't be dependent on where you live or, or any other cultural factors you have. We should be able to deliver optimal care to all individuals diagnosed. And then clinical trials. We have more than 50 companies that are developing uh, drugs for Duchenne drugs and biologics to express dystrophin or replace dystrophin or look at the downstream of inflammation, fibrosis, et cetera. So clinical trials should have, people should have opportunity to clinical trials, not just a subset of individuals who are able to still walk, right? The, the clinical trials should be available to all patients, regardless of age and stage of disease. And, and then obviously when we have approvals and we now have approvals and five approvals in the United States that patients need access to those approvals. So the reason I say time is because time means loss of function in these individuals. And that's the greatest concern, right? When will this therapy be available to me to be able to slow down the progression of the disease? Wow. Thank you, Pat. The work that PPMD has done is just remarkable. You mentioned certified centers, standards of care, and also research investment from the NIH, which is incredible. Now, something that I thought was really interesting was that in your search for answers, you started this organization. Did you have any experience working in a nonprofit before? Did you know that this was where you would be today? Well, no, I certainly didn't think this was would be where I was today. Um, I really, um, I had a nursing career. And it was in early um, in my early years, adult med search, medical surgical nursing, as I mentioned. And then it, it as we moved into this small community where my husband practiced medicine, I got into educating patients, which I really loved that interaction of talking to patients about their disease and what implications that meant for their lives. When when my sons Christopher and Patrick were diagnosed, no, I didn't think about it, but I felt like we had my sort of personal maybe even selfish thought was one person alone can't do anything, right? You you really, it takes a village. I mean, how many times do we apply that? It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village of people to drive research forward. It it takes more than one. And so my my thought was, um, was, first of all, I was very alone in a rare disease. And I think the rare disease community or people with rare diseases often feel very isolated alone and alone. I think that in the world now where we sit with social media, it's much easier to connect. But at the time with me, you know, there, that was before the social media and the opportunities to connect virtually were uh, available. So starting an organization, I felt like collectively we could do something much greater than a single person could do alone. So I wanted to gather the community. I wanted to really raise 
interest and ability and money. I wanted to be able to leverage money. I wanted to be able to change policy. So one of while when we started PPND, our first investment was um, based on meeting with different researchers who who really suggested to us that it takes a village, right, to do research. And so you need collaboration. So you need academic centers with lots of different expertise to to drive research in a certain area. When you think back to the beginning of PPMD, uh, can you tell us more about how you went about rallying all of these people to help you in your cause? I think most nonprofits, it, when you talk to the people who founded them, start around a kitchen table, right? And, and it's sort of the kitchen table theory, if you will. You, I met some parents through my travels that had children with Duchenne, right? All feeling much the same as I did, quite isolated, frustrated that there wasn't, you know, frustrated with therapeutic nihilism, right? I, I don't know what to do and I'm not going to do anything sort of approaches. Frustrated that they didn't have confidence, perhaps, in the experts that they were seeing. Um, and as parents of children who are diagnosed with rare diseases, there is there are so many feelings that you have to contend with here. One is guilt. Um, I think as parents, we want to do the best for our children, right? We always want to make sure that we're making decisions that are going to be helpful, that we try to pursue for them and with them the best quality of life possible and offer them any opportunity that they dream about, right? That we want to bring that to our children or, or be able to offer them. So around the kitchen table, I had met about four or five parents and we all felt the same thing. We all shared the guilt. You know, we we felt like we failed motherhood and fatherhood. We have a child with a genetic disease and it's not that we thought we were, shouldn't have one. It's just that we, have, you know, we didn't expect one, right? It's what you expect and what you anticipate as you have children and what you expect will occur in their lives or, or how you will help them. So we all felt guilt, frustration, sadness. I think chronic sorrow goes along with the diagnosis of a child with a catastrophic disease. And, and so, and we felt helpless. Thank you for sharing that, Pat. Those feelings you mentioned of guilt, frustration, and chronic sorrow are just so raw and show the reality of how you must have felt. Would you be able to share how these feelings turned into action, which led to the formation of PPMD? So. I think then and what what is beautiful about the communities is that we reached out to various bench scientists and they were interested, right? First of all, we said to them, we want to support you. You know, we not by working in your lab, obviously, but what what is it that what's the small thing we could do? And and obviously money to help them. And so we then expanded our community from parents who had children with Duchenne to a research community that had interest in Duchenne. And that expanded to a community of doctors who had patients with Duchenne, right? So I think they, around the kitchen table, expanded to different groups of people. And I always like to say to parents, you know, as we think about this, who is our us, right? Who is us? And us is certainly parents and our children that are diagnosed, but us is also the bench researchers. Us is also the clinical community. And, and us is also the countries we live in, right? Because they have an these elected officials have an obligation to us to not to treat every child with a rare disease, but they have an obligation to healthcare. So getting to know those individuals and including them with our community 
So we have very good relationships with people who are in Congress, who are on the House or the Senate side or both. Um, and, and then to do this in a, in a way that is reasonable and rational and respectful. So this kitchen table then expands to how do you look at a, at a nonprofit? What, what are the rules, right? What are, how, do you, how do you become an organization that is really run well, that justifies if I'm going to ask someone for money, whatever money, if that is $5 to a million or more, right? I have to be able to say, I'm going to use it wisely. Here's a process by which we'll be using it. Here's how we prioritize what our interests are so that we can have this dialogue that reassures you, the donor, or the person I'm asking for, asking money from, is comfortable that we are going to use your money wisely and well. So I think it is really about then taking a step back. And no, I didn't have experience in nonprofits. I, um, my only experience had been in medicine. But when I started, as I really took on the responsibility of, of receiving uh, money and people put their money where they care about something, right? I wanted to make sure that we did that wisely and we did that well and we had the confidence to be able to ask and make sure that we could report back on our progress. So I think that um, and it hasn't been simple. I, we're 26 years and we're still learning. Um, it, you know, we've we've gone down some uh, paths that didn't didn't work out. We've certainly um, invested some money in areas that didn't work out. Um, but I think you in in rare disease research and in all research, you have to learn from the 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 things that sometimes you learn more from what went wrong than what went absolutely right. And so we've applied those learnings and we continually do that. I think the other the other um, the other piece that I've really learned is when you're working in a foundation, you need to hire talent to help you, right? Because you can't utilize the parents who just have interest. You need real talent in the organization if you're going to do these programs um, with sophistication, with quality, um, and you need quality control and capability and expertise to move things forward. You touched upon some really important ideas, such as that idea of feeling alone, that if nothing else, you can raise your voice. And as your table expands, that you can do more with um, parents and scientists um, than doing it all alone. Just to backtrack a little bit, you mentioned um, optimal care and clinical trials. I noticed you didn't specifically use the word cure. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about this idea of cure versus improving quality of care versus giving patients more time? Sure. Um, The word cure is hard for me, right? Because what does it mean? What really does it mean? And I think that we have all different definitions of it. So for me, a cure means no evidence of disease. Right. So that would mean that if you had newborn screening in effect and that was um, you diagnosed the child at at birth, that you treated that child and that individual would have no Duchenne wouldn't be part of his life. Right. Not ever. So he would um, have normal, healthy skeletal cardiac and smooth muscle. And, um, And so so I think that's a really big word. And I think that for some parents and all parents, perhaps in rare diseases, it's what we wish for and sometimes nothing we can have at the moment. So if you have a teenager, we'll say with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, who's lost 70% of his muscle, what is a cure, right? So for me, I'd rather talk about stopping progression of disease. 
because we've already got a diagnosis. So I'd like a therapy that stops it right here. And I think that that there isn't a parent on the earth that has a child with a catastrophic illness that doesn't get out of their bed in the morning and pray to whatever God they think about or whatever universe they think about. Stop it here. Just don't let it go any further, right? So uh, I um, I hope one day that there is an incredible cure um, for every single rare disease because I still am of the philosophy that children shouldn't be sick uh, ever. Um, for me, language really matters of how you describe something. Um, and and when a child is diagnosed, we've had experiences where the the individual that they met with, whether it is a clinician or a bench researcher, said, I think I can cure this, right? Okay, that's everything I want. But I think I can doesn't mean you have. And it doesn't tell me the time. And that's why I started off with time, right? From the diagnosis, which is four to five years old, you have a 20 years of progression. So if you can stop the disease at any age or stage, that's not curing it. But boy, does that really make life different. So um, I am one of those crazy people that think about language all the time, how clinicians use language, how we as parents use language, has how language is used to describe the wants and needs of this community. I think that in rare diseases, very often based on language, either the, the caregivers and parents and partners and extended family are either high on you know hope or they're very low on it's not going to happen in my lifetime. So I think trying to maintain a balance of, and I think hope is hope. So I don't think there's false hope and I don't think there's unrealistic hope. And I don't think there's, I don't think there's versions of hope. I think hope is hope and we all deserve hope. Um, but I don't think that we should make promises that we can't deliver until we can deliver them. Thank you for that, Pat. Um, and I apologize if that question was a little bit difficult or- Was it upsetting? It's just cure is a really big word. I guess I'm reminded of a story, and this is maybe why it's it's a very tender issue for me. There was a family in a clinical trial, um, and the the father had called me very excited about this clinical trial. So, the child was screened and and was included in the clinical trial. He called me probably four or five six months in and said, "My my child has really sort of turned into this different child, right? He's really acting out." He's not doing well in school. He's becoming very um, angry at school. Um, so we talked about, can you have you talked to him? You know, have, has he been verb verbalizing about what he's feeling? And the answer was no. He just was getting just angry and frustrated and and crying intermittently. And, and they couldn't they couldn't figure it out. Then it was another month or so. He called me. He said, "This is really awful, right?" sort of the last straw, the reason I got this call was that he took his plate and threw it against the wall. So this father said, he, this isn't my son. This isn't his, this is all new behavior. So we agreed that um, this little one, he was um, eight years old and he didn't really want to talk to his parents. And he, and he probably, we worried that he didn't even know what was wrong. So we, we all had this conversation and I said, you know, last straw, I would probably take him to bed I would probably sob and say, I don't know what's wrong. I, I really want to help you and I don't know what's wrong. And, and I said, I'd probably be sobbing every night anyway. So the dad called me back and he did that. And you know what his son said to him? His son said, well, I started this clinical trial. Essentially, I'm 
I'm sort of recapitulating what he said, but um, I started this clinical trial and you said it was magic medicine. Before I started that in school, all my friends knew me, all they liked me, we did stuff. They knew I wasn't as, as quick as they were in terms of function. I couldn't play the games that they played outside, but they included me, right? And then I started the trial. So I was away from my friends to go to the trial. Um, I missed some of the stuff that happened at school. And I told them I'd be just like them, but I'm not. I'm not just like them. In fact, I'm more different now because I'm going away to somewhere to, you know, participate in the study. And, and, and so, so the whole thing was that he was a, he was made an assumption that he was going to become like his peers and do the same things as his peers. But in fact, he felt more different because of the contribution he was making to the clinical uh, trial, the times that he would be absent from school, the overnights that he had to spend at the clinical trial, and his muscles, and I don't know how these muscles feel, but they didn't feel any different to him in terms of magic medicine, right? So that's why I, I really think language is important here. There is nothing more than either any parent in this, in this diagnosis, or for that matter, any catastrophic diagnosis would want than their child to be like their peers, right? Whatever functional or cognitive loss would be totally restored maybe like their peers. So that's why the word cure is hard for me. In terms of my last question for you, can you tell us one important message that you have that you'd like to share to our listeners? I think the most important thing for all of us is to be connected, right? We would be doing our dis a disservice to each other if we didn't realize that it takes a village to get things accomplished. And the greater we work together, the greater we really look at priorities and messages and use those consistent messages and priorities to advance science. I think for the healthcare community in terms of healthcare experts and bench scientists and, and certainly your program. I don't like to say the patient is the center of anything. I don't believe that because if you're the center, then you don't know what's going on behind your back. So I don't think that's a great idea. I think the patient, this is a symphony, if you will. And the patient is part of this symphony, valued and respected. The role is known. Um, and the role is part of a continuum of that symphony and if we're all working together on the same sheet of music with the same instruments that are known and valued, we're going to make greater progress than if we think differently. So I think the patient and the caregiver, the families are impactful and important members of the healthcare community and should be respected and valued if so. Do you have any suggestions on perhaps one thing that our listeners can do to help? I, I think for your listeners is get involved, right? Find something you care about and do it. And do it with all of your heart and will. I think that we all care and have had experiences in our lives that we've seen people we love die um, for reasons that they that we think that field should advance. I think that finding something you love to do and doing it well is really, really important. And, and I don't think any of us, um, or I should rephrase that and say, I think all of us benefit from being connected for a purpose. So, uh, you know, when my son died, and this is the last thing I'll tell you when my son died, I looked at his Latin notebook. And I don't know if he was the author of this comment that he had scribbled in the back of his notebook. But he said, um, the meaning of life is life of meaning. And I think that he was exactly right. Thank you so much to our special guest for being a part of our conversation today. Today, we heard from Pat Furlong, who shared her experiences with muscular dystrophy and starting a nonprofit. 
thank you so much for being a part of episode three of our Impact Gap podcast. You can find more information about us on our website at impactgap.wordpress.com or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at impact underscore gap. If you have a story that you'd like to share and are interested in joining us as a guest, you can contact us at impactgap at gmail.com.